And the prophet shouted to the people, I want you to act as if your house is on fire, because it is. You say you love your children above all else, yet you are stealing their future in front of their eyes. Shivarim, the broken blast. Only a few thousand years ago, our prophets roamed the earth. But today, a young climate activist, Greta Thunberg, has revived prophecy in our generation, and a million Gretas are blooming today. In case you missed the news last week, literally millions of children from around the globe left school and marched to demand our attention. They are blasting the shofar across this land to wake us up. And when our children start to blast the shofar, maybe it's time to listen. Why was this march different from all other marches? I was at the youth-led climate march here in San Francisco. I went to support our kids and to feel some sense of inspiration. But honestly, I came away scared. Our kids are scared, and they're getting very angry. And if you aren't scared, scared enough to start changing your behavior and taking action about this, maybe this sermon will change that. During the hottest July ever recorded in human history, Iceland memorialized its first ever loss of a glacier to climate change. It was literally a funeral for the Akjakul Glacier, where their prime minister and the former UN Human Rights Commissioner dedicated a plaque at the former site where the glacier stood, which bore the inscription, a letter to the future. It read simply, in the next 200 years, all of our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. We know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you will know if we did it. Today we come together to celebrate the birthday of the world, Hayom Harat Olam. This is the day literally celebrating the birth of the world. Human beings have only inhabited this planet for 200,000 years. Yet since the advent of agriculture 12,000 years ago, we have destroyed 83% of all wild mammals and over 50% of all plants. There have already been five major extinctions. And we're in the sixth. Humans are the perpetrators and humans are the victims. We are indeed the flood and we are the ark. I hear from you almost every day. What, what could I possibly do, Rabbi? The future is so uncertain. I'm only one person. I'm not a government or a corporation. But the problem is none of these statements are actually true. The future is very certain. We just haven't moved from knowing the data to believing that it's true. We live in community and we're not alone in our convictions and our actions. And we are the resources that fuel corporations and the government. The Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan said, the future of the future is the present. He meant that the future is already right here. Yet somehow we allow ourselves to believe 
that the climate crisis is happening in the future or somewhere over there. But the temperature, in case you didn't notice, last week was 100 degrees in the Bay Area. Camp Newman in the Southern California Jewish camps burned. Our kids at Camp Tawanga last year were evacuated. And since the early 1970s, California wildfires have increased in size by eight times. Are the Bahamas and Haiti and the Amazon and Katrina and Puerto Rico too far away and not simultaneous enough to warrant extreme action? Una Tanatokev, who shall live and who shall die? I met my first climate refugee this year, not one of the 200,000 Bangladeshis who are displaced every single year from their homes, but it was a climate refugee from Phoenix, Arizona, who moved here to the Bay Area because they no longer could breathe in 124 degree heat every summer and they were afraid they were gonna die if they stayed. The article about it in Rolling Stone magazine kept me up all night very recently. It reminds me of the famous Yiddish song Esprent, It Is Burning, which was written in 1936 by Mordechai Gebertig in response to a pogrom which burned down an entire Polish village to the ground and foreshadowed the Holocaust to come. He wrote, as do shtetl is ech tire. Ach, dos shtetl is ech tire. It's burning, my brothers. You are the only source of help. If you value your shtetl, take up the tools to put out the fire. Put out the fire with your own blood. Just don't stand there, my brothers. Don't stand there, put out the fire. Our shtetl is burning. So much has burned since 1936. How can we not feel these words in our hearts and our souls as we remember just the memory vividly last summer of putting on masks on our children and on ourselves when the ash and the smoke from the summer fires invaded the Bay Area. And now, the bad news. In times of great joy and of struggle and suffering, we do, as a Jewish community, have something to turn to. We just held it tight in our arms, surrounding us and us surrounding it. The Eitz Chaim, the Torah, the Tree of Life. We have carried that Torah, the intact scroll, for the past 3,000 years, and I believe it has carried us. It was clearly scribed for moments like this one to guide us. It is our compass, and it lays out very concrete ways to conserve, to preserve, to regenerate, and to focus on the future by focusing on this very moment. The most innovative thinking today about climate, the climate crisis is completely aligned with our Torah. Professor Jem Bendel, the director of the Institute for Leadership and Sustainability, has developed something called a deep adaptation agenda, which mirrors the Torah's mitzvot perfectly. He calls them resilience, relinquishment, restoration, and reconciliation. We call them Shabbat, Kashrut, Shemitah, and Tshuva. In the story we read from the Torah this morning, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. And then when God sends the angel to stop him, the only words to me in the story that really matter are the angel calling out, Avraham, Avraham, don't lay your hand on your son. Because there's no doubt about it, that angel is talking to us. Don't you dare even if you have a moment to do it, lay your hand on future generations in a way that would sacrifice their future. 
wake up, he says to Abraham. And what about Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph? Joseph was the one who interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He was incarcerated, he came out, and he went to Pharaoh, and he said, you had a dream of seven fat cows, and then you had a dream of seven scrawny, emaciated cows. And the Pharaoh said, what does it mean? And Joseph said, you're going to have seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of drought and horrific famine. He was only a dream interpreter, but Pharaoh put the hands and the future of all of Egypt into Joseph, and he said, you are now the viceroy. So Joseph implemented a plan, knowing the data in front of him, even though it was only a dream. And he planned for seven years of storing up grain and making sure there were resources so that during the seven years of famine and drought, there was enough. There was less suffering and less death. The Torah teaches us about Shemitah, releasing ourselves of what is unnecessary. It focuses on our relationship to the land. Leviticus says, the land cannot be sold beyond reclaim, for it is mine, and you are but strangers resonant with me. The Torah's insistence on the creator as the one who owns the land is a beautiful idea. Who are we, though? Just fragile humans. We are so attached to our stuff. I'm attached to my stuff. But who are we if we don't own real estate or a closet overflowing with clothes or the latest model Tesla? We live in a world where our earthly possessions literally define us, while our Judaism explicitly teaches us to let go of it, let go of it every seven years, actually. Shemitah goes further to give the land a Shabbat, with a lesson that today all regenerative farmers know. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard, but in the seventh year the land shall have a complete rest. It's the way we have to start farming all land in this world. This year, after reading only the introduction to Marie Kondo's prophetic book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, see, almost anybody can be a prophet now. I went into my house in my garage, and I released myself of half of my belongings. Now, some of you might know my brother is a Buddhist monk, and he has inspired me greatly in recent years. And don't worry, I'm not becoming a total ascetic. I I like my stuff. I'm as attached to my stuff as all of us. But how much does this stuff really weigh on us? Think about your closets. Think about your garage. And then think about our planet. The Jewish idea of things that are ownerless are called hefker, and it comes from the word pakar, which means to set free. Any object declared hefker is set free of its owners. And once I started the process of just saying, I'm not using this. I don't need this. It feels very heavy. I felt hefker. And so I am going to challenge you in 5780 this year to do your own Shemitah. Let go of that which holds you and weighs you down. I know you're all thinking about something right now that you can get rid of. Now, maybe you don't get rid of half of your stuff, but get started on your own Shemitah. It will help you in this process of change. This is something I guarantee your children and your grandchildren will greatly benefit from and thank you. If you've ever cleaned out a deceased relative's home, you know exactly what I mean. Because we will all be someone's deceased relative and our stuff will be theirs one day. When I was ordained in 1997, I decided to start keeping kosher for the first time. I committed to that because it reminded me three times a day of my commitment to the Jewish people and my change in status as a rabbi. And I kept kosher for 16 years 
and then realized at that point that keeping kosher didn't make me feel any more Jewish or more committed as a Jew. So for a period of time, I started studying eco-kashrut. In the beginning, God said, I have given you every herb yielding seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree for you to eat. So until the time of Noah, we were intended to be vegetarians. So this is another challenge. Now you don't have to do all of them, just pick one of these. Stop eating red meat for one year with me. Stop eating red meat. Now, if you're a non-meat eater and you're going, done, um, Rabbi, you're so behind the, the ball. Half the people in here don't eat red meat. So if you don't eat red meat, you know that there's something else that you can do that you eat or that you consume that if you change that habit will impact the future and the present. The point of this is to remind you every single day of your commitment to the future, to give the future generations the same choices we have today that we really just take for granted. And then I want you to report back, let me know how it's going, if that one change that you're doing publicly engenders another or has an impact on other people. And then invite your friends to do it with you. It will make it more likely you'll be eating at home and in a community rather than eating in restaurants or alone. And I'll tell you, we will all be living much more collectively and eating communally in the decades to come on this planet. Finally, and I believe most importantly, the Torah gives us this radical, revolutionary idea called Shabbat. So I'm challenging you in this year to unplug one day a week for 24 hours. Think of Shabbat as the quiet shofar that you can only hear when you are unplugged. Show of hands, how many of you in the last month unplugged for a full 24 hours? Find one of those people and ask them why they did it and what it felt like. Traditionally, there are 39 categories of prohibited work on Shabbat, which is the orthodox way to interpret and practice Shabbat. But for most of us, the 24-7 hold that technology has on us and on our children is the toxic work of today. A guide for practicing tech Shabbat happens to be a new book that was published by our congregant Tiffany Schlein. It's called 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. She's not orthodox. She belongs to this congregation, and she writes about her family's evolving tech Shabbat practice over the last 10 years with, yes, teenagers. They do it too. Simply turning everything off that's a screen for 24 hours. And then you start realizing it's not what you can't do in those 24 hours, but what being unplugged enables you to do. Listen, share, be creative, eat together, look into each other's eyes, play games, bake challah, draw, express love, read, write, taking one day a week to detox from the screen has an ability to change your life. In fact, in the book of Exodus, Shabbat is called Vayinafash. It's the power of taking our souls, which almost we lose every week, and putting them back into our bodies. Now, imagine if the gift that we, the Jews, gave to the whole world was Shabbat. If Hindus gave us yoga and meditation is not just for Buddhists, what about Shabbat for every single human being? What would the effect be if every single human being on the planet unplugged for 24 hours, taking a Shabbat and including the earth in it. God tells us that we are the earth. If we tune in, we will remember that everything that we are doing 
to ourselves, we're doing to the earth. And everything we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. Can you imagine what it would feel like not to be interrupted, beeped, notified, pinged, or vibrated for an entire day? I want you to try it. Take back the time that technology has stolen from us. Tell everybody you know in your life who's trying to get in touch with you during those 24 hours. If it's an emergency, call my landline or come over and knock on my door. I'll talk to you again on Saturday night. It's a tremendous gift. If we are awake, it is hard not to be afraid because it's a fearful time in our world. But we are not alone. We have a community here to sustain us. This 100-year-old sanctuary where we are safe and secure, we're surrounded by loving family and friends in our Torah. We're not on a screen right now. I mean, if you're on a screen right now, come on. <laughs> I'm not going back to the beginning, blowing the shofar and talking about Greta again. Get off your screen. We are live. We're alive. We are supposed to be present on this birthday of the world. And to your left and your right in the sanctuary are the most creative and the most destructive forces in the universe. Look to your left at the stained glass windows of fire. And to your right at the windows of water. Both of these elements are life-sustaining and both are life-threatening. And the rainbow right there in the middle of the water. The rainbow is God's covenant and the guarantee that the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When God places that rainbow in the sky, God uses the word remember, zahor, twice, and makes it clear that the reminder is for God to never destroy the planet again, not a reminder for humanity. But that is not right. That rainbow has to be a reminder to us, too, a reminder of Baal Tashchit, the Jewish ethic, not to destroy, not to waste, and not to use up. In Jonathan Safran Foer's new book, We Are the Weather, he writes this about the rainbow. A rainbow is also a rope. It can be thrown to a drowning person or it can be tied into a noose. No one who isn't us is going to destroy the earth and no one who isn't us is going to save it. The most hopeless conditions can inspire the most hopeful actions. We have found ways to restore life on Earth in the event of a total collapse because we have found ways to cause a total collapse of life on Earth. We are the flood and we are the ark. We are the flood and we are the ark. This year, the Earth Watch Institute in Britain concluded that the bee, the bee is the most important living being on the planet. And recently, it was revealed it is literally on the edge of extinction. Bees around the world have disappeared up to 90%. 10 years ago, in 2009, I brought a living beehive onto this bima. Anybody here remember that? There was a beehive on the bima that year. I wanted to preach about the effects of this thing called colony collapse disorder, which was already beginning to decimate the bee population, and which really has become appropriate in describing what's happening to us, colony collapse disorder. And so I think back to 2009 and 2019, and then partnering with our future selves. Where are we going to be in 2029, in 5790? 
My sincere hope and prayer for all of us is that we will have partnered with our future selves. Think about who you're going to be in 10 or 20 years. Where are your parents? Where are your children going to be? Be in themselves and be living. We will be observing Tech Shabbat. We will be eating and consuming in ways that ensure less suffering. And we will all be doing Shemitah, living as lightly as possible to preserve our resources and to prolong them. So often we think about these times like, where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you on 9-11? We have those in our mind. Where were you when you made the decision to make a choice so that as the climate crisis unravels, you know that you are doing everything in your individual and our collective power to ensure less suffering, less death, and longer time on this earth. As for me, I pray I will still be alive and well in 10 years living in the Bay Area and that my own work as a rabbi here at Congregation Emmanuel will also be transformed by this vision I'm talking about. So where is our board president? Ellen Grenitz. I am officially putting in my application to become the senior beekeeper of our Emmanuel Next building project because we haven't discussed this yet, but as, <laughs> as we move into the 21st century with this architecture, I want us to cultivate hives on the roof garden right outside, which we will build together. In 10 years, I want us to be able to provide our entire hive, our entire community with an ark full of honey. If we can help to prevent the bees from going extinct, what else can we ensure for our children and our grandchildren in our future? May we, this community, the Jews, the non-Jews, every human being, continue to merit breathable air, drinkable water, and delicious honey that comes from adapting our behavior to acting differently now and collectively regenerating our planet for our children. Please, partner with your own future self. Be a visionary and listen to the shofar blast of a million Greta's blooming. May the day finally come when the menches in all of us survive, thrive, and lead the way. Amen. Amen. It's my honor to now call up Pamela Rose Nicholspiel, Cantor Addy. Back to the Bema, because when we talk about prophecy, we talk about the people who pierce our hearts with the truth. I love Leonard Cohn, and I know many of you do too. And so this song reflects back to our Torah portion. It's the song Isaac, which Pamela and Cantor Addy are going to lift and pierce our souls with today. Been slowly, my father he came in. I was nine years old, and he stood so tall above me. His eyes were blue and shining, and his voice was very cold. He said, I've had a vision, and you know I'm strong and holy. I must do as I've been told. So we started up 
the mountain I was running he was walking and his axe was made of gold you who built these altars now to sacrifice these children you must not do it anymore the scheme is not a vision and you never have been tempted by a demon or a god you stand above them now your hands it's blunt and bloody you the beauty of the word thought I saw an eagle but it might have been a vulture I never could decide my father built an altar and looked months behind his shoulder now to sacrifice these children you were not there before when I lay upon the mountain and my father's hand was trembling with the beauty